millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, taxing the multinationals. Is it possible to do anything to stop them paying less tax by making most of their money where the corporate tax is lowest? We'll look at how they do it and how we can stop them, if we can stop them, today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. So, Steve, what got me onto this subject? I was watching uh, an interview with, you probably know him, the American economist Michael Hudson. If I had been reading some oh, of Mike, it. yeah, a yeah, good friend of mine. Good and friend. I love his writing as well, I have to say. Mm. He was mm. talking about uh, balance of payments and how he worked for Standard Oil. And he was trying to work out where they made their profits. And in explaining it all, it just explains so simply how, mm. how simple it is for multinationals to basically, you know, do transfer pricing. Because, mm-hmm. um, he said their profit was all coming from countries like Liberia and Panama, countries that only use the US dollar. They've got their own currencies, but they're worth exactly the same as one dollar. They're pegged one to one to the dollar. So everyone just uses the US dollar. Companies, oil companies sell cheaply to their operations in these countries where they do nothing with them. They don't pay any tax, but then they sell them on at a very high price to their refineries in Europe and America, where the mm-hmm. price is so high that they don't pay any tax because they're not really making any profit. It's as simple mm-hmm. as that. And that's the way multinationals work. Uh, it was then, and it still is now, and it doesn't seem like we can do anything to stop that happening. Yeah, look, I've known this for about 45 years, 50 years. Um, because of, of as well as they're doing work on multinationals and and how they uh, do their their transfer pricing and so on, one of my good friends back at Sydney University is a guy called uh, Greg Crow, and Greg was working for a while on the Transnational Research Centre at Sydney at, uh, at Sydney University, founded by Ted Wheelwright. So I was aware of all these shenanigans, uh, you know, from 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 Greg's research. And, and Ted Wilrice research as well. But I also had just a little um, cameo once to remember. It's, it's still one of those things that you know, sticks in your mind. And why does it stay in your mind? But it did. And this is at a party uh, with a bunch of you know, my friends back when I was a 20-year-old rather than a 65-year-old as I am now in the mid-20s. And I was talking about Greg's research to a uh, computer programmer. And he said, oh, look, I get experience of this all the time. He said, I work for a multinational. I've forgotten which one it was. And uh, he said, uh, I, I rang up one day to, to um, get some advice about a, a particular subroutine in our database system. And um, he said he's good friends with a person in the account, uh, account section. And the person in the account section, that telephone call cost us 10000 bucks. And he went, what? And he said, that's the price the Americans charge if we ring up for advice, $10,000 an hour. <laughs> now, that's inside the same company, okay? Yeah, yeah. So a telephone call, which, you know, might, might have cost, you know, a, ten, a dollar, a dollar a, say, let's say it was 10 bucks a minute back in those days. Uh, so the, the cost of the company was 30 bucks. The guy on the other end was probably being paid something in the order of 30 bucks an hour. Let's imagine the whole thing cost 40 or 50. The transfer pricing level the company put on that was $10,000. 
because the tax rate in Australia was higher than it was in America. So to get to the bottom of things like that, to try and say, well, okay, we need to ensure companies aren't doing this transfer pricing, that is uh, forensic analysis that's needed to try and find out how they're trying to cheat the system or beat yeah. the system. I yeah. mean, yeah. cheat away is cheating. It is cheating. It's, 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 it's frankly cheating. And this is where a large part of the accumulation of wealth has come from uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. And we know how extreme it's got because the money which, which is supposed to be taken out of the accounts of people according to their income scales and taken out of companies that are flat rate uh, is manipulated internally by uh, uh, people using tax havens. We all know about the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. including, including up to and including the Prime Minister of the UK. Uh, by the looks of his dad was using one of these schemes, you know, and there he is supposed to be the one managing the taxation system and his family is involved in, uh, I think Cameron, one of, one of them was involved. We, we know that from the, from the Paradise Papers. That's at the personal level. But the really big stuff happens with the transnational corporations at the international level. And this has become a total farce because, of course, many, many countries have gained, you know, tiny countries have gained a, a benefit out of slack uh, policing of transnational taxes and often charging lower taxes in the first place. And that's where they've got their alleged operations and their alleged profits. And this is why so many US companies have so much money sitting overseas, which of course is what uh, Donald Trump was trying to stop or at least trying to, I don't think he was trying to stop it, he was at least trying to get that money to come back into the United States. So the US had $2.5 trillion sitting overseas Obviously, that's not good for, for the U.S. balance of, of trade either. You know, so you've got uh, U.S. companies making big profits, but the money's not being repatriated. So it doesn't appear as a balance of trade uh, benefit. So Donald Trump offered them a tax break last year. Repatriate your profits and pay a one-off tax of 15%. Seems like a smart move. It doesn't solve the problem, but at least it gets that money back from Panama or wherever it's sitting. Um, maybe a short-term smart move, but on, on the other side, it's sort of like helping those companies, isn't it? Saying, well, if you continue to misbehave, if we give you an amnesty like this, um, then, you know, even better, you can get the money back where you want it. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the problems about trying to use income tax in the first place as the basis of taxation in a modern society, because when you look at where income tax comes from, I think it's dates from, a, a, it's, it's around the time of the First World War. It hasn't been something which was permanently a way of funding government. And of course, the scale of government now is far larger than it was back in those days. So uh, I don't know the precise figures for the American economy, but I'm I believe that the rough scale of the level of government expenditure when this Great Depression hit was of the order of 5 to 7% of GDP. After the Great Depression and after the Second World War, it leapt to 25 to 30% of GDP. Now, in that situation, you had to get a larger tax uh, source to, to uh, because this, this comes down to how money is created as well. So I'm not saying the government has to tax to spend, by any, but it doesn't. Uh, but the, you, when it's spending that much money into the economy, if you, you're talking about spending, let's say, 7% of GDP into the economy from your capacity to create money as a government, uh, then you don't need a large tax base to claw a fair bit of that back until the amount of money you're creating is roughly equivalent to the uh, increase in the size of the GDP of the economy divided by how often money turns over. And that's my little metric for how much of a deficit a government should normally run. So when you're talking back in the days of the, uh, the pre-Great Depression, 
7% of GDP is your level of spending, money turning over about twice, two, two to two and a half times per year, you needed a deficit of about 3% of GDP to create the extra money that the economy needed to expand at that rate. And wow, that's pretty much what the government was doing, uh, funding itself for largely tariffs and so on and so forth. That was the custom duties and so on, uh, with a, and, and sales taxes and so on were the main form of, of taxation back then. And of course, you can't evade customs because you've literally got the goods at the door. You've got to get it, you know, uh, from, from the ship to the, for the port. You've got to pay your customs duty and you, you can't evade sales tax as well. Now, of course, income tax comes in to fund the much larger level of expenditure. And when that began, that was, in some ways, before the days of the the truly transnational corporation. So you're talking income tax or company tax? So com- income tax, right. income tax. But com- company tax existed as well, but I don't think. Again, it wasn't anything like the scale that it was before the before the Great Depression. So the increase in the scale of government uh, meant that most of the burden for this hoovering the money the government's creating back out of the economy, which is fundamentally what tax does, mm. that fell on that burden fell on income tax. And when it began. With progressive income taxes, of course, you had in the UK, we all know that the Beatles were talking about leaving the UK because they were paying a 99% tax, the rate of income tax. And, and of course, if you're paying that much tax as an individual, you're going to say, how's Monaco these days? Mm. And move out. So that's fair enough. But uh, the... For the corporations, this was how do we manage to minimise the amount of money the government's sucking out of what we've managed to you know, pull in ourselves from our sales. And the easiest way was to operate in two countries, persuade one of them to offer you nice little uh, perks in return for you moving your operations there but paying no tax. And that's what you did. And that has completely perverted the income tax system and the corporate tax system that we now have. Well, I think in in the situation that Michael Hudson was describing, I don't think this oil was going to Panama. It was just the money was going to Panama, and and then out again. It was all just uh, it was all just accounting, wasn't it? But it was. Oh, all, yeah. It's all to try and avoid, by and large, paying tax, corporate tax. So if no companies, if no countries charge corporate tax, wouldn't that stop this sort of transfer pricing happening? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> you know, if, and, and, and the only reason to say, and maybe seems like an unbelievable dream, but I mean, countries could say, well, look, we're just going to tax people for the income that they make, uh, and we're going to charge them more, and we're not going to tax companies because that would mean, hopefully, there would be more money, more money paid to the uh, to the employees. You don't. Need what do you pay- think you- Rupert Murdoch would pay his tax? Yeah, well, okay. I mean, there's okay. always, but I mean, there's always going to be people avoiding. No, the, 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 the thing is, the, the, wealth, the wealthy can avoid income tax. This yeah. is the thing. Okay? Well, and uh, and they can avoid corporate tax clearly. Yeah, they can. So, the, the, in other words, I don't think anything based on income is going to work mm. because what happens? I mean, again, let's get back to the. Let's not let's let's not start on a wrong foot here because the usual argument, you know, the government has to tax in order to spend. It's yeah. not. The government no. has to tax yeah. to take the money out of existence that it's created by its own spending. Uh, uh, because it's now spending at the order of 30% of GDP. If you had 30% of GDP as literally financed by spending without taxation, then you would have that's about, you know, about 10 times, five to 10 times the rate of growth of the nominal economy. You would have runaway inflation, absolutely no doubt about it. So you simply have to do is find some way of hoovering back up the money that you're uh, creating by your, by spending in the first instance. Now, income tax has now been completely perverted. Income tax and corporate tax have both been completely perverted by the wealthy. Uh, and that what it means is, therefore, the hoovering burden falls upon the middle class. Mm. And this is where the middle class has started to vote for characters like Trump and say, we're going to reduce your tax rates. So you end okay. up with it becoming actually a, it's, it's a boost for right-wing politics. Uh, land tax, then, instead. 
tax people yep. on the uh, the size of their estates, perhaps, if you want to reach those people. But, I mean, it does seem that governments are struggling to try and put rules in place to try and offset transfer pricing. In fact, supposedly there was an agreed standard set by the OECD uh, which says tax paid in any country should be based on three things, the activity that's performed there, the assets that company holds there, and the business risk it bears. Uh, so that would explain why Google pays very little tax. Uh, most of its activity is in the UK, in, in the US, I should say. So that's where the activity is performed. It's basically a sales function everywhere else. They've got very little in the way of assets. They've just got an office somewhere in each of these countries. Yeah. And the, the business risk it bears, well, they bear no risk whatsoever because, um, you know, they're, because they're, they're just selling stuff that's created overseas. Yeah, I mean, I, my my feeling is we have to, the only way we can actually get around this is to use a transaction tax. Yeah, because uh, ultimately, if you're going to spend that money, if, if, if when people buy something off you, then of course that expenditure occurs in a particular geographical location, and you can tax the transaction, and you can tax the transaction on the the purchaser, you can tax it on the retailer, you can tax it on the supplier. Uh, there's three possible ways, and, and there's no real way for them to evade that unless they're going to try to go to a cash economy. And with, with three institutions doing that, one of them is going to be legal about it in a sense. They're not going to be practicing fraud over it. They're going to record their cash transactions. So but, you have you have a the, way to capture but, it that way. Right, but the final transaction or the transaction from one company to another? Uh, I'd go for the internal transactions. Right. I'd go, again, like the value-added tax, which is supposed to do that, of course, is horrendously complicated. I don't think of anybody who's got a small business who explain how difficult it is to fill out value-added tax or you know, business activity statements and all the rest of the stuff you've got to do that way. Uh, but it's a much lower rate of taxation, but occurring in every last damn transaction. And uh, with the intention of getting the bulk of that up to the point where you have taken out enough money to, to, to not be generating an, an inflationary level of demand in your economy, that's what I should see as the, the objective. And I think one reason why we don't get there is because the people who are making decisions about what we tax and how we tax and so on are still thinking government has to tax to spend. And that sort of constrains thinking dramatically. Yeah. But even even when you start talking about transactions, even that can be cheated or if not cheated, it can be moved around. So uh, let me give you an example. I, I do a, a, a podcast for a foreign company, an Australian company. I live in the UK. They pay me in, in Australian dollars. Now, I guess if it had been a different conversation, they could have paid me in sterling. That would have meant that my income within, within this country was higher and I would be paying VAT. The fact that they, it, it's seen as foreign earnings means I don't get over the VAT threshold with the work that I, with the work that I do here. Mm. So I, I just, you know, one, they, one they, phone conversation could says, could we, could we do, do this a different way? And I'm a one man business. So it shows, you know, if I can do that, imagine what large businesses can do. Yeah, but if there was like a flat tax on the on the transaction itself, so yeah. and then that applied wherever it was. Let's say it's one percent or two percent of the trend, of the turnover, even less than that, maybe half a percent. Yeah, uh, then well, that tax is well, paid for every last trans transaction done between you and uh, the foreign company. Well, that wherever is, it might occur. Yeah, but then um, how do you get around? That is a bit like what the what the UK government is trying to introduce, of course, with the digital services tax. So they're saying they've started a consultation process on this just now. They, they want to introduce it by 2020. They're saying a 2% tax on the UK revenue of digital businesses. Not quite sure why just digital businesses, but anyway. Uh, but companies that are considered to derive significant value 
from the participation of their users, whatever that means. That's that, that's a that's on revenue, not profit. In other words, so in effect, it's uh, it's saying to Google, yeah, if you're if you're making sales here, we're we're going to tax you, irrespective of your profit, we're going to we're going to tax you on two percent of the revenue that you make in this country. Um, but that is just a, an end tax. That's not the 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 processes the that that happened before that. The transfer payments that might happen before that. I think it actually, it, it, the trouble is that stuff has to be internationally coordinated because countries will still try to find yeah. areas where they can move. But I don't, the, ultimately, if you're going to be making money out of English consumers as Google, then you've got to have transactions with them. And, uh, it, 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 I mean, you can imagine people using VPNs and all sort of stuff like that, virtual private networks to, uh, to evade the geographic location they're supposed to be at. But then you've got the VPN itself. Um, it, 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 but you still got to pay, and you normally have to pay with the UK credit card. So they yeah, aren't, yeah. yeah. So I mean, you can catch people that way. On that, Google paid forty nine million pounds on uh, profits of two hundred and two million last year in the UK. Hang on a second. Are they forty nine million on profits of two hundred million or billion? No, two hundred million profit. But the company is like, making oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the company is making nine billion pounds dollars a year. They're making profits of 202 million in the UK, but their revenue in the UK is 7 billion. So 7 billion dollars. I'm, I'm switching between billion, between dollars and pounds here, but they make 7 billion dollars in revenue from the UK and 202 million in profit. They're not very, not a very effective operation in the UK, it would seem. <laughs> because the tax rate is higher here than it is elsewhere. Yeah. Which is why, which and is yet why. They, you- they would say the cost of, so, well, it's, it, so how do they do that? I mean, it's clear transfer pricing, isn't it? Absolutely. Because what are their costs here? You'd have to say it's an incremental business. They're a US business that's expanded overseas. They've done all of their development work for the United States. They can attribute some of that cost here, perhaps, but most of their cost here is the incremental cost of putting a sales team here yeah and i think also i mean most the head office in europe is based in ireland i think to take advantage of low corporate tax rates there yeah so they are they're certainly manipulating and they think this this is i think it was old kerry paco those three people that don't know was australia's uh one of australia's leading billionaires uh before his death and certainly with the most colorful personality amongst the billionaires and he was <laughs> that's the best thing anyone's ever said about him he was actually, I bumped into him one of all places. I bumped into Kerry Packer when I was training for a triathlon in the pool of the uh, Consolidated Press Building in Pitt Street. And I, that just, I, I was doing, you know, power laps. I was trying to do 60 laps of a 22-meter pool and see how fast I could do it. I was never a good swimmer. And I just got it. We went into this hulking sape that was in, in, in the other lane, just, just sitting there about 20 or 30 laps before I finished. And when I finished, there was Kerry Packer. <laughs> and he said to me, I wish I could do that. And I said, we all make our choices, Kerry. And he said, yeah, I hopped out of the pool. <laughs> <laughs> End of conversation. All right, so, of what, conversation. so what were you saying about him? Oh, you've lost he your train. Saying, oh, okay, no, that's good. He, 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 no, I haven't lost my train of thought. Oh, he, he, the laps kept me in line. <laughs> uh, he's, he was, he's in, he's in, he, nobody, if you pay him more tax than you're bloody, well, you're, you're an effing idiot, quote, unquote. Yeah. So uh, in other words, and what you have, if you, like problem. you and I, you and I, there's no way I have time. But I had to get my tax done about six months too late. I got warnings about it being about to be overdue, you know. And it, I, I it have shoe boxes with records. And if I'm lucky, most of it I, I give up on paper these days. I'm just doing electronic. I haven't got time in my own personal life 
by any stretch of imagination to manipulate my taxes. But Kerry Packer can hire an entire team to do that. And one of the problems about trying to do this by regulation and so on is that the team he can hire is going to be paid a damn sight more money and have a damn sight more motivation too than the people working in the tax offices themselves. So what the tax offices end up doing, and we've seen massively horrific stories about this from Australia, they go after the easy targets. Yeah. So in every way, the tax office ends up persecuting the little bloke and letting the big guys get away with it. And, of course, because they, the big guy, they know they take the big guys on, they're in a hiding to nothing to lose when they get taken to the high court over it. The small bloke can't even afford to go to the magistrate's court. So what's your take on this idea by Donald Trump then? For all this money, this $2.5 trillion that's sitting overseas uh, from, from U.S. companies, trying to get them to come back, repatriate that money by paying a one-off tax of 15%. Was, was that a smart move? Because it looks like... You know, this is an opportunity for the owners of those companies to get their hands on the cash that's sitting overseas. They, they, they know if they bring it back here, they're going to, to get taxed heavily. But he's given them an opportunity to bring it back, which they've used, of course, to buy back shares in those companies. So their own shareholdings in those companies increase in value. So they're better off as a result of it. So, I mean, it's yeah, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lose win for them. And, uh, and this mm. is the trouble. They, there's just the wealthy have got all the potential mechanisms to get around this stuff, and there's no real way to to to, uh, to stop them. And um, even if you go on transactions, of course, they make less transactions, but they still make financial transactions. Uh, now, I'd like to see the, the idea of a transaction tax, of course, can be applied to financial transactions as well. So you can catch a lot of this stuff as well, including, of course, in that case, the uh, increase in the value of their shares. But how do you do it with internal transfers if you're treating them as transactions? Because companies will, because then you get back into the whole forensic accounting argument, don't you? What's a transa- What's an internal transaction within a company? Easy to track, smaller company. Again, you're going to get the smaller guy, aren't you? Because they deal with other suppliers, so there's more steps involving more companies. So those transactions are more transparent. Mm. If you're trying to take a uh, through the through the supply chain through which is largely a vertically integrated company, you know where are those transactions happening? Then they're, they're not happening. It's all just one company. Yeah, I mean that's the problem. You, you you certainly what 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 ends up being the the problem is that there's a redistribution of the burden of taking the government's money out of circulation uh, that falls upon the working class and the middle class rather than falling upon the wealthy, and therefore the wealthy manage to accumulate more of the money that's created every year um, by, you know, they've got to make a profit to do it, but that, that, that's, that's, that's a step in the process of accumulating that money and building it up and, of course, getting wealthier uh, by paying less, but by returning less of the money that, there's, that they get their hands on than the, than the working class or the, or the poor can do. And that, I think, is capitalism. So maybe the Chinese approach makes more sense. You know, the Chinese approach where they say you can only trade here if you set up a partnership with a local company, we don't want multinationals behaving in multinational ways. If you are forced to set up with a with a local company, then um, then then basically we know how much money you're earning and the money's staying in the country, and we can tax it. Yeah, I think that, that's the, you have to do something like that as well because I mean the Chinese did it to, uh, to to develop a capitalist class in China out of the transfer of American technology through the free trade zones they established back in the early 1980s. And I've, I've actually personally saw that happening uh, back when it was when it occurred in eighty one, eighty two in the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone. So it, it's a very clever mechanism, and it also basically says uh, you, you do not have complete freedom of capital. And but this is a great a tra- you know, one, one of the great traps of, of capitalism is the economic theory that argues everything works better if things can move freely without obstruction. Now 
it is a damn sight harder for a worker to make a move than it is for a, for a capitalist profit to make a move. Um, and, and that is, again, uh, skewed in favour of the wealthy. Um, so if we want a society which is not going to have social breakdown, and I think even, I mean, capitalists like Nick Hanur have pointed out that the, the pitchforks are coming as these, these trends continue. Um, if you want a society to continue functioning, you have to stop this exaggerated increase in the inequality that can come out of a trading system. And the way to do that, one of the ways to do that is say, okay, uh, we're not going to let you become totally multinational. If you want to operate in another country, you have to have a domestic partner. You yeah. have to own a certain percentage of the business and, and wear it or don't turn, don't come. So why aren't more countries do, doing that? Why wouldn't Europe do it, for example? I think it's, again, just an ideology thing. I mm. mean, the, this is the neo, neoclassical ideology, this vision of free movement of capital and labour, uh, this fantasy world they have, which uh, where that leads to an optimal outcome for everybody, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it's like breakfast cereal for these people. They consume it so often they didn't even realise what they're eating. And, uh, and, and, and that ideology prevents you making fairly sensible moves like that. And, of course, the Chinese didn't start with that ideology. They began with a completely different ideology. So there's no particular big shakes for them to say, okay, if you want to start, and this is literally what they said, if you want to establish operations in a free trade zone, you must have a Chinese partner. And we don't care who, how the capital is raised, but within five years, they must own half the business. Now, you can, um, this again is another example of how multinationals. Because really, they know, because they know by doing that, the money is going to stay in the country. And, and they're going to develop a local capitalist class and they're going to get technology transfer, all of which worked brilliantly for China. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. that was, that was my, my, I remember that, vividly remember meeting, uh, that meeting where that, that strategy was explained to me and my group of journalists I took there back in 81, 82. Um, and it was, you, if we'd been through all these bloody spiels from all these, uh, you know, uh, show communes that were trying to convert from a socialist to a capitalist system, which were a total farce. We didn't think any of them were going to work. This time, the listener thought, this is going to work. This is clever. It's going to work. And, of course, the wage differentials at that stage, I, I don't know what Chinese workers being paid back in 81, 82. I knew then. I can't remember now. But it would be well under. Uh, it would have been in cents per hour versus you know, tens of dollars, $10 per hour for the American workers. So the American multinationals looked at that and even though they were being told they had to hand effectively half the ownership of the business within five years, the profits they were going to make, even out of half the business, were so great that it was worth them screwing the local workers and shutting down the production and moving it off to China, which is what they did. Yeah. So if so, if companies, more countries did this, like, like say, for example, Europe did, and it seems like a, a huge opportunity for Europe. I mean, seeming as, uh, you know, uh, relations are bad with America, might as well do it now. Uh, you know, what have you got to lose? This would be the, almost the perfect opportunity to say, well, look, if you want to operate in Europe, yes, you've got to partner with a local company. Then you know, say, for example, I don't know, we suddenly discovered there's, uh, there's massive oil reserves underneath uh, the Alps. Brussels, Brussels. Underneath the Brussels. Brussels. Okay. Brussels. Yeah, so we're going to yeah. dig up Brussels. And, and, and um, uh, couldn't happen to a nicer place. And they Indeed. are, and they, uh, but it has to be done with a local company because then you know they're not going to ship all the profits offshore. Uh, at least half of it is going to stay within the European Union. And you base it on transactions as well and make it harder to do that because, you know, if anybody breaks the law in that situation, Google, uh, you know, Standard Oil or whatever it's now is would say, uh, so sue me, international courts. But if you've got a domestic one, it's a domestic company facing rather more serious ramifications from fraud. Yeah. So, yeah, it is, it is, it is something that you need ownership changes as well as a change to a more transaction based system this, rather than income tax. This, of course, will never happen. 
Of I mean, course not. So mm. we are, so the situation is just going to continue as it is. And we are going to keep on, you know, trying to introduce, because it's interesting that, you know, we've, uh, the, the UK is saying, yes, we're going to charge, we're going to charge 2%, uh, a, a tax on, on the big digital players. But we, we've got a tax now in the UK. Uh, what's called a diverted profits tax. It's been around since 2015. It's 25% of diverted profits. So if it's discovered that a, a, a multinational corporation has moved money that should have been paid here, then, then they're going to get taxed at 25% of that moved money if the case is shown. And they made it 25% so that it's higher than the, uh, the level of corporation tax here. So you think, okay, well, if we get caught, we're going to have to pay more than corporation tax, so maybe we should pay the corporation tax. But the income from that last year, from this diverted profits tax, was £388 million, which sounds a bit like a drop in the ocean, doesn't it? It does, and that's the trouble of you again, because it's only going to be a small cases that can be prosecuted. And if you get, if you try to take these people on, they fight you for years in the courts because all they're doing is, you know, feeding their sons and daughters who might be lawyers. So it's, uh, it's, it's very easy to delay this stuff, uh, when it involves proving, uh, that there was a profit made in the first place or proving that you had, had somehow diverted your profits. It's really, really complicated. And the, the, the better, uh, better quality accountants and the more highly motivated and certainly higher, more highly paid, work for the ones trying to evade the taxes rather than the ones trying to, to capture them. So this idea of forcing partnerships is almost breaking down the size of these monopolies, isn't it? And is that, is that the end game? Is that what we should be doing? Or are the benefits of having uh, large multinationals? Obviously, they're offering services cheaper. Yeah, I mean, there certainly are advantages um, uh, because yeah, they wouldn't form in the first place if they weren't being successful compared to the marketplace in general. And again, this is where economic theory throws a whole lot of useless myths in the way that stop people thinking soundly about it because the vision that they, they have of all these, you know, a bit like you, you, you and I are pretty close to the vision of a neoclassical um, profit maximizing firm. And we're a sole operator, sole employee, you do everything, yada, 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 our own marketing, our own, our own production, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in a large corporation, they operate in a marketplace, but internally they are command economies. Okay? Uh, mm. People are not paid per, per unit that they move inside Amazon by internal transactions. They're told to damn well move that box for a, for a pay rate of X, uh, or preferably pay, a pay rate of half X per dollar. So there is a, a command economy being quite successful inside the marketplace. And the question is, why does that happen? And it tends to be internal, dramatic internal economies of scale and then network effects for companies like Google. Once you Google, it's very hard for anybody else to be Google part two. Mm. Yeah, the, that whole first mover advantage thing. But one of the one of the disadvantages, and maybe it's less so in the digital age, but, you know, go back a, a, a few decades, we looked at multinationals as being those companies that were devastating third world countries. They were pushing prices up in those uh, economies because they were bringing in high paid foreign workers. They were repatriating profits. So they were sort of like, um, you know, cutting up the countryside, cutting out competitors uh, and taking the money out. They had slack environmental standards. So, you know, think of Bhopal, the Union Carbide mm. plant in India in 1984, where thousands of people were killed instantly. And then, you know, many more thousands in the in the weeks that followed all that sort of stuff obviously doesn't happen in north america or europe because the you know the nationally multinationals were uh, just offering slack standards because human life doesn't matter so much there uh, you know th they were the bad boys and we don't tend to see that so much because perhaps there's less of that stuff happening but i can't help feeling that you know some of that stuff is still going on in terms of for example 
closing down local businesses, obviously taking the profits out and, uh, you know, and raising prices and uh, in economies and, and adding to inequality. Yeah, and you're basically exploiting the differences between countries rather yeah. than uh, countries using their differences as a, as a source of, com- of comparative advantage. And again, here's an economic <clears throat> myth getting in the way of us understanding reality properly. Because they believe in comparative advantage, they and because they they don't realise, in fact, the theory of comparative advantage, as wrong as it is, also assumes that capital doesn't move, neither capital nor labour move between countries because that throws up the welfare calculation the theory makes. But, of course, that is what happens. So they're exploiting, again, the naivety that our politicians have, and that naivety, the source of that naivety, is mainstream economic theory. So it seems like, just to finish off, the only thing we can do then is a tax on revenue, is a is a tax on transactions at the end point, and we seem to be trying to introduce that in the UK, 2% tax. They've been trying to do it in Europe, by the way, but uh, uh, they were supposed to be doing that this year, but they're, they're, uh, they, in the last few weeks they fell apart, the, the agreement fell apart, they didn't quite manage to get it over the line. Um, but as you say, everyone's got to do it, haven't they? Yeah, and I think it's, it, it, it is something which you, you'd, you'd need to have it uh, internationally based to some extent, but it can still work on a national basis. But your idea as well of saying, okay, you've got to have a local partner and let's even even push it further. Let's make it a local partner has to have uh, worker ownership as well to some extent. Um, maybe that way we might get uh, these being a... Uh, bring a bit of democracy into a very uh, authoritarian system. A flipping Marxist, aren't you? Uh, I'm Steve a flipping King. Marxist as always. Here we go. <laughs> Good stuff. I want the workers to have shares. That makes me into a Marxist. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were about to say up the workers. They're up the workers. Uh, so we'll see you again very soon, Steve. Thanks. Bye, mate. Okay. And next time, another subject a flaming Marxist would come up with, how is privatisation working out for you? We're going to look at the railways, we're going to look at uh, uh, other state-owned utilities that have been privatised and ask whether it was a smart move uh, or whether it was a step in the wrong direction. And can you pull them back? What should be privatised and what should stay in state ownership? We'll look at that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll be back for that too. I'll see you then. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.